We direct your attention this morning to the reading of the Word. We're in the book of Hebrews, and we are in chapter 5. There are only a few verses here, but hear now the Word of the Lord. About this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the work of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. The subject and topic of our little devotional this morning before we come to the communion table is discernment. In fact, we find the word in the text down here. It talks about the powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. That's the frustration that the writer here is having with the audience at this point, is he is about to explain to them an extremely complex and yet marvelous teaching from the Word of God. He's going to lay out for them the whole plan of a new priesthood. The old priesthood under Aaron and Moses in the days of the giving of the law at Sinai served Israel all those years in the wilderness, in the land of Canaan, throughout their exile, and then in the rebuilding in the second temple, and right on up to the days of Jesus, the Aaronic priesthood in the temple offered the sacrifices and the prayers and did all of the, the, the administration of the people's spiritual life. The writer of Hebrews is trying to tell these who've trusted in Christ Jesus that Christ has fulfilled all of that. He's the object of all of that. He's the goal of all of that Old Testament ordeals and rituals. And that Jesus Christ is a priest, a complete priest, a high priest, a faithful priest. But he's a divine priest and a human priest together. And he is a royal priest together as well. And this is embodied in a a character that is seen but briefly in the Bible and in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 17, a fellow by the name of Melchizedek. And we'll pick up in chapter 7, verse 1, where our author picks up. And we'll have a lot to say about Melchizedek and the Melchizedekan priesthood and how it's a higher order. It's a divine order. It's a royal order of priest. And Jesus is a priest after that order, far superior to the order of Aaron. And we'll talk more about that, as will our writer. But our writer stalls out for just a moment. And as we've mentioned, that this is not just a, a letter to us. It's indeed a letter. It has uh, epistolary and letter uh, features. But it was probably an exhortation, a sermon, uh, even a, a, a lecture to the people back in the first century in the early church. And he stops because of his audience. 
He said, Jesus is made perfect, being designated by God a priest, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then he just stops. This order of Melchizedek. I have much to say about this order of Melchizedek. And it's hard to explain. It's hard to explain not simply because it is complicated within itself and it is something that in order to understand it we have to bring in a lot of new material to understanding the mind of God and the person of Christ and the spiritual work of God within us. But it's hard to explain for another reason. And that's the thing we focus on this morning for a moment. And that is this, this idea that since you have become dull of hearing. There's the problem. It's not with the truth of the Word of God. It's not altogether the problem of the preacher and the teacher of the Word of God. But it's the hearer of the Word of God. And he has a couple of problems with you <laughs> and me. One is that we're dull of hearing, and one is that we're immature. Oh, that's hard to hear, isn't it? This, this is a bit of a rebuke. It's certainly an admonition. But I think it should be, as we reflect upon it, kind of a turning point. Maybe this is in the new year, in a new decade, it's maybe a time to sort of refresh ourselves in the things of the Lord. We become dull of hearing a lot of times because we hear the same thing over and over. Now, it's interesting here that there's a distinction, I think, between dull of hearing and hard of hearing. The hard of hearing tends toward the deafness. And I don't think it's the deafness that he has a problem with in us. I think it is the dull of hearing. It's not a matter of deafness. It's a matter of discernment. You see, people tell me, and I've talked to quite a few People, men and women, as they, as they begin to age, they talk about how their hearing becomes more difficult. And it's not that they cannot hear, or they can hear. It's they have difficulty distinguishing sounds. They hear, they hear a din, a mass of noise. They hear all sorts of vibrations upon the spectrum of sound. They hear high and low. They hear loud and soft. They hear mellow and sharp. But it's harder to discern and to pick out what's happening and, and hear one person in the middle of a room full of people talking. And it's hard for them to stay with the flow of just one sound. Somebody that struggled with this, it's, it's already, I think, beginning to happen to me a little bit, but my grandfather uh, had a lot of trouble. He was virtually deaf when he died at 87. My father, who died three years ago at almost 97, sat right down here on the second or third pew every Sunday morning at 8 o'clock, having driven in from Rockwall, every, he and mother, and they would sit and listen to me. And I thought that was only fair. I grew up listening to him preach. He ought to have to sit and listen to me for a little while. And I don't think he wanted to, but mother did. And so mother, my mother, who wanted to hear my preaching, made my dad sit and listen to me. And one of his complaints, of course, as always, was, sound. And uh, in fact, one, he, he grabbed about it continuously. He ran through a couple of sets of 
of, um, of uh, hearing aids, and, and poor dad was, um, really had a tough time with it. Uh, it. It hurt his personality. In fact, in his last years in the nursing home, because he was so hard of hearing and so dull in his hearing, he couldn't uh, keep up with things. They would ask him questions that he would give a wrong answer, or he would not respond. And they thought he had dementia. He didn't have one bit of dementia, he, but he couldn't understand the questions. But instead of saying, excuse me, I'm hard of hearing, would you repeat that? He wouldn't do that. For some reason, he would just pretend like he heard and go on and then behave accordingly. In fact, I remember him telling one story about he went to the doctor and uh, took some hearing tests and, and in a discussion with, with his doctor. And his doctor said, well, your, your hearing is okay. He said, but you just have a difficult time distinguishing certain parts of the, of the spectrum, of the sound spectrum. The doctor said to dad, for example, you will have difficulty hearing little children and women. And my dad said, no problem. <laughs> well, that's our problem, <laughs> is it's the discernment. It's that failure. And what we have not done, I'm afraid, and he's going to bring it out to us, is we have not developed the powers of discernment in our Christian life. Powers of discernment in theology, where we have learned, and the scripture says, trained by constant practice. The word that's used here in the original is a word that means habits. We have not gotten those habits. We've not trained ourselves in those habits of disciplines that enable us to make discernment. We have not contemplated, we have not practiced. And I think they probably are in two broad areas of our life. One is in our belief, one is in our behavior. In our belief is our theology, our understanding of the Bible, our understanding. It's not that we want to understand the Bible. It's the Word of God. We want to understand God. It's not Bible knowledge that we seek. It's knowledge of the divine. It's knowledge of our Savior. It's knowledge of our, our, our Creator. It's the knowledge of God that is important to us. And in order to discern things about God, there must be some training by constant practice. How constant is our practice? How thorough is our practice? I remember when I was a kid, I was admonished over and over to practice piano, practice, practice. Well, I didn't. And if I had him, I might have been like Stephen Nielsen today, but I didn't. No, there's no chance I'd have been like Stephen Nielsen today. But, but I didn't practice. I hated practice. loved to play the piano, but hated to practice scales and all that sort of thing. And I didn't for very long. I had managed to talk my mother out of piano lessons. She was trying to give me piano lessons. I managed to talk her out of it by, in the fifth grade, I've been taken since about the second or third grade, about the fifth or sixth grade, I convinced her I was going to be a basketball player. And so I needed to practice basketball, which is what I did for a couple of years. And then when I refused to grow beyond five foot five, I thought, well, maybe I'm not going to be a basketball player. And about the ninth grade, I picked up piano again, tried to learn a little something. But it just doesn't happen. No matter how much you love it, I mean, how much you love the Lord and love the Word of God, you've got to practice. You've got to 
to see some things in the scriptures that are discerning with respect to the belief. You need to know, for example, something of the mystery of the triune God. How is he one great, eternal, majestic God, all-powerful and all-wise? Three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. You can't come to that with just a light-hearted, momentary thought. How has God in His great love and mercy, with His absolute justice and holiness and righteousness, with His great love wherewith He loved us, sent Jesus to die for us? Why the God-man? Why the crucifixion? Why the atonement? All of these things must be a matter of practiced thought in our mind in theology. Probably the greatest thing you'll need to work on in your theology beyond the person and work of the Godhead is your understanding of the work in terms of law and grace. Martin Luther says you don't understand the gospel if you don't understand law, God's commandment, God's precept, and all of the cursing and blessing that goes with that and grace. Where in spite of all of our sin and all of our inability and all of our depravity and all of our straying, God overwhelms it all with this magnificent mercy that he's bestowed upon us. And we didn't have to do a thing and we couldn't do a thing and everything we did do was wrong. But God overcame it all in grace in saving us. You have to contemplate that a little bit. And then he turns around and because he has saved us by grace... The grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared to all, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. In other words, there's a whole set of do's and don'ts. There's a whole set of commandments. There's a new standard of expectation. There's a mode of behavior and activities that are expected of us. Not in order to be saved, but because we have been saved. We've been changed. We are new creatures in Christ. It's not just that we need to understand things about doctrine and our belief, but we need to understand things about our belonging. These are the B's of the Christian life that you hear me mention from time to time. It's not just belief, but it's belonging. Who are we? What is our identity in Christ? What has God bestowed upon us that we should be the children of God? Can you imagine that? St. John asked in his letter. Can you imagine such a thing as that? That we have been bestowed an identity. And it's in Christ. It's not just our belonging, but our belonging not only to Him, but to each other. What does it mean to be one body? What does it mean to be living stones built up into a living holy temple unto God where God dwells in the midst of us? That takes some practice in discernment to understand the nature of that body. How about discerning the body of Christ in the supper? It's one of the things the scripture calls upon us to have some discernment with is, is the body of Christ. What does it mean that he died and gave himself in a once-for-all sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice upon a cross in which his body was broken, was riven, torn, and the blood oozed forth and then shed forth and then poured forth. 
And how does that body and blood work for us? What does it mean to consume the body and blood of Christ and to live by His nurture? It takes some discernment, it takes some thought. Not only in belief, but in behavior. What is the discerning difference in your Christian life between the liberty that we have in Christ? We're freed from the yoke of the law. The sting of death, the yoke of the law is gone from us. There is no condemnation. There is a sentence upon us that is the sentence of acquittal. No condemnation. We're free, absolutely free from all the obligations of the law with respect to eternal life. The Old Testament said, do this and live, and we didn't do it, and we're going to die, but God has saved us by the atoning blood of Christ and raised us in Christ and our position in Him. We're free from the law. Oh, happy condition. But are we left to do just anything we want to do? The scripture I quoted a moment ago from the the, uh, letter that Paul wrote to Titus is we are admonished to live soberly, temperately, wisely, modestly. What kind of lifestyle is that called for? Generously. We're called to live righteously. What is it like to be upright before the Lord? Perfect only in Christ, imperfect in ourselves, but we live upright. There's a lot of great men that lived up. They were not sinless and perfect, but they were upright before the Lord. Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Job, they were upright. What does that mean to be upright, to have a, a, a good behavior and a clear conscience and a good reputation among all people? that our hearts are pure, that our language is clean, that our attitudes are wholesome. And yet there's still a list of commandments there. We've been freed from the law, oh happy condition. Does that mean we can take the name of the Lord in vain? Does that mean we can now bear false witness? Does that mean we're free to murder, to steal, to commit adultery, to covet? We've been freed from the law in the sense that we can just... Or do those commandments have a richer and a deeper and a more wholesome meaning? Are we able to discern the heart and the action together in our lives? You can, I, you can stand and preach and pound the pulpit and dogmatize until you're blue in the face, but it won't help a bit unless we come to understand it for ourselves. If I give you a, a list of rules and regulations, if I give you a list of do's and don'ts, if I tell you what are the rules and the laws of this church, and we become so hyper-fundamentalist in our, in our list of things we do and don't do, if we get to that point, we've missed the whole point. But we're not here to live any way we want to. Have you ever, let me just give you one example. This, this is a fun example for me. It's the last commandment. I shall not covet. Have you discerned in your heart how that any kind of gambling, playing the lottery, betting on football games, playing table and card and parlor games for money, how that 
is a violation of the 10th commandment? Have you discerned that? Have you seen how that God has a way in which he gives us wealth through industry, through thrift, through health, through blessing, and that the way we are to gain wealth and have a proper stewardship over it is to gain the wealth properly, hold and use it properly, and dispense it properly according to the whole teaching and the whole counsel of God. And to try to gain wealth by a lottery or by some kind of way other than what God has chosen is a covetous heart. And have you noticed in the scripture that it was that commandment that drove the apostle Paul to his knees in repentance? It was the law had said, thou shalt not covet. And that's what pricked his conscience. He realized he was a covetous person. I use that as an example because it might be just a little more subtle. Coveting has to do with our heart. Murder has to do with what we do outwardly. Committing adultery, bearing false witness is how we treat others. But, but coveting is, is an engendering of the sinful nature within the heart. And it is possible to manifestly keep all the commandments of God and still be as corrupt as a whitewashed sepulcher in the matter of covetousness. But it takes some discernment. Imagine when I spoke about that a moment ago, there's a few people who say, oh, you know, what's wrong with taking risk? Nothing wrong with taking risk. It's not the risk. It's the seeking to get that which God has told you to get by other means. It's wanting to take of the wealth of others in an improper way. And it moves into charging interest in a certain way. It moves to exploiting employees in a certain way. It moves to certain... Uh, transactions in business of making the ephod small and the shekel great. You've got to work through that. You've got to discern that yourself. Because here's the problem. He says, for by this time, you ought to be teachers. By this time, every one of us in this room, for all practical purposes, with a few exceptions, should be able to lecture with precision. The ability to teach is to break down into parts and to impart and enable people to, to grasp this so they can then grasp that. And by analogy and by addition, they can learn things. They learn first principles and foundations. They, they start with primers and introductions. How many courses did you take in college that was 101? It was the vocabulary course. It set the stage where you could learn it, but you didn't learn really the science you didn't learn the, the art until you got into the 102 and the 201 and, you know, and, and on up and then maybe even to graduate school when you really begin to learn the fine points. And when you begin to learn the fine points, you look back and see that the principles were kind of flexible. There were some gray areas. There were some exceptions. There were some anomalies. But you didn't start with all that. You didn't start with all that. You started with the first principles. And that's what teaching does. It lays it out. Good education system will lay it out. They'll have introductory courses and, and they'll have courses, prerequisite courses. And, and you all ought to be teachers. Everybody in this room, for all practical purposes, ought to be able to take the things of God and teach it to someone. Laying it out in, in first principle form, in intermediate and in advanced lessons. And in, in all the subtleties and the practicalities of your belief and behavior. You ought to be teachers, but yet we're not. 
We need someone to teach us, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. Now, he doesn't say in this passage what the basic principles of the oracles of God are, but they are enumerated in chapter 6. There's repentance from dead works, faith toward God, instructions about washings, that's baptisms, plural, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. Half a dozen of them are spelled out there. But the first principles are the important principles. And we ought to know those. And we ought to have those basis for discernment. A sign of intelligence is the ability to distinguish between things that differ. Why even Sesame Street says three of these things belong together. Three of these things are kind of the same. And then there's an exception. And that's the way we ought to be able to do with our faith with our belief, with our behavior, with our belonging. These are the things that we ought to be able to discern in this. But instead, we've like the person that's dull of hearing. We hear lots of noises, lots of sound out there, but we can't discern what is the, what is the right, what's the voice of the Lord in the middle of this? What are we hearing that we need to know from Him as opposed to what are we hearing from the world? What are we hearing from the news? What are we hearing from our families? What are we hearing from our culture? What are we hearing from our education system as such at various levels? It's that we need to, hearing all of these things and having this din of noise in our ears, much of which is ungodly, unrighteous, based on error, not truth, based on science, falsely so-called, as Paul describes it in the epistles, and yet we fail to discern. And that's what, that's what he's telling us to do here. He's taking this aside from this doctrinal study to tell us that we need milk. We need the basic. Peter and Paul, both in their writings, refer to milk. And it's always that basic, sincere milk of the word, that basic thing that we need to, to set all of the principles and the guidelines that enabled us to do this in uh, discernment. But solid food, verse 14, ought to be our motto. Solid food is for the mature. You ought to be mature. You ought to be teachers. You ought to have a keen understanding of some of these things. And your life ought to show it. Your life ought to be so cleaned up and straightened up and your walk so straight and your testimony so powerful that you just look different from most everybody around you. You may have come from the same family, your brother and your sister, but you, they're not believers or not mature believers. You ought to be different. What a standard. What a, what a, what a marvelous aspiration. Do you renew in your heart and your mind before the Lord, personally and individually, that you need to move. You need to grow. I always think of little subtitles for sermons. If I was doing this one, I would think of it as knowing and growing. 